Fixplasm episode 82. This is the third episode for the Eternal Champion, Michael Moorcock's Hawkmoon sequence. So that's four stories. The Jewel in the Skull, The Mad God's Amulet, The Sword of the Dawn and The Rune Staff. And I am delighted to introduce my guest for this episode, which is Dirk the Dice from the Grognard Files podcast. Hello, Dirk. Hello there, Ralph. Thanks for having me on. I'm looking forward to this. I've recently reread uh, Hawkmoon, so it's good to put it to some use. So, so the um, the approach that I'm doing on on this series is slightly different from the usual episodes I do, which is um, rather than sort of go through an in depth synopsis and then talk about role playing bits. This is much more me rediscovering the 14 volumes on my shelf and reading them in order and then finding out what I can get from them. So what I'm going to do is we'll have, as discussed, um, talk a bit about the volume itself, that's specifically the uh, Millennium Edition of Hawkmoon, and um, Michael Moorcock's forward, the wonderful art on the front, and then brief synopsis of the four books. But then I'd like to talk about the favourite bits, the scenes, and what it kind of really brings to the whole eternal champion milieu. So before we get into that, Dirk, um, your relationship with this, when I mean, you, you just read it recently, but I think you said that you originally, you, you got um, the first four books and you absorbed them as, as a burgeoning SF and fantasy review author. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. I got these uh, millennium editions when they were first released by the British Science Fiction Association I'd done my time for many years uh, reviewing paperbacks uh, for Paperback Inferno, as it was then, and uh, I've doing capsule reviews of Ben Bover and uh, the third uh, novel in a trilogy, Fantasy Doorstop Trilogy. So I served my time, and they finally gave me an assignment to look forward to the first four volumes, and, and they gave me a thousand words to play with. So it's the most word count I'd ever had. So it's a bit daunting, but it, it was great. And I think I think it was the first time that I fully appreciated the idea of Moorcock's multiverse, because I'd come to the volumes previously piecemeal so you know i discovered elric very early on yeah. uh, when i was 12 and um hawk moon and quorum and some of the other um some of the other things like jerry cornelius but i hadn't really I, i'd seen the connections obviously because they appear in the different the, the different characters appearing in it, but i hadn't really conceptualized the multiverse when i first read them and i think it's these millennium editions that for the first time kind of highlighted that and brought it together in a way that I hadn't really thought about it before. I I can see that. And my experience was very much, I I started with these Millennium Editions. So compared to a lot lot of the people I know, I came to it quite late. Um, But this was actually my first, the first Moorcock I bought and owned. And I I think, uh, you know, I'd I'd known about Michael Moorcock for a long time. And then it happened to be in a a bookshop in Oxford. And uh, I saw they'd got a number of different uh, number of different volumes there and I think I went for the one that looked the thickest and would have had the biggest word count and also the because of course I was a student um, and it was Hawkman and it blew my mind I remember that was that was a that summer I was um, I ended up reading it on my own when everybody else had gone home from our digs and I read Hawkmoon and also I remember I watched on my own Orlando with uh, Tilda Swinton film uh, in the penultimate picture palace just down the road from where i was staying 
That was um, a special summer, really. Yeah. The first time I read uh, Hawkman, it came in a, almost like a slipcase set produced by Grafton uh, with all the four volumes together. And that was unusual because it was a frustrating exercise in the 80s trying to um, corral all the different stories, particularly when it came to Elric, because they appeared in different editions and it was really hard to find any sort of chronology or logic to it. And again, I think it's the Millennium editions that that kind of helped you see this as a, a continuum, if you like, even though there's some frustrations along the way. So I, what I do know is um, I'd like to talk about the cover uh, because by Yoshitaka Amano, uh, second one in the series by that artist. And you wrote some interesting notes on this. So I wanted to give you, if you want to you know, give your take on that. <laughs> yeah, I really liked uh, these when they came out because, of course, um, at the time, Yoshika, uh, Amano was uh, designing the uh, fighting fantasy characters for um for the video games industry and he was he, his character design um is particularly unique at, at the time and it's interesting that he drew from Moorcock and Moorcock's vision ideas and concepts i mean the the helmet on this is beautifully elaborate and um it's a kind of wistfulness about Hawkmoon that probably isn't in the character that as I understand it, but the way he depicts him with the battle raging behind him is is is, is there's something sublime about it, and I find I find it interesting how Moorcock has said those those that vision has fed into his view of his own work and his later understanding. He continues to do that. I think Moorcock with different interpretations, different artistic interpretations that he feeds on. Uh, the imagery that people provide him and builds on it. And they, in turn, are inspired by him. And and I think, you know, as we go on to look at some of the things that Moorcock and his, his style, it's his economy of style that allows people to use it as inspiration. I also think it, it, it it's funny in the... It, sorry, it's interesting to look at the different interpretations of Hawkman that have come through the different... Um, uh, you know the different publications um mm-hmm. you know the, the one i always had and i keep referring to it the uh, grafton one and it was earlier the mayfair one it's interesting to look at the um the, the different interpretations of hawk moon through the years on different covers and it the one that always struck me is the bob haberfield one which is the strange allegoric juxtapositions with the literally a jewel in a skull on the on the first uh, novel, and uh, the raven and an orb and a body emerging from a, a weird head, um, and that always uh, that always had a kind of eerie influence on how I interpreted um, the novels. But of course, uh, Moorcock um, collaborated a lot with uh, James Cawthorn and has said that his vision, that you see him in the graphic novels, is the closest depiction of how he imagined the world of the tragic millennium. So I always find it interesting that these successive artists come along and um, Walcott claims, yes, that is my vision. And um, the artists, the artists in turn are inspired by his imagery. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's terrific. You've mentioned those. I'm going to, um, I'll try and, 
you know, summarize those as completely as I can in the show notes. Yeah. You've, um, you mentioned a poster by Rodney Matthews. Oh, yeah. Defence Castle Brass. Yeah, so all these different interpretations uh, are second to the real interpretation, which is Rodney Matthews, because that is the one that I had on my bedroom wall um, it, when I was 13. So this is Hawkmoon defending Castle Brass, and he's uh, fighting uh, Astrovac uh, Mixavar in his vulture mask. And in the background, you can see the eerie towers of uh, Castle Brass and um, these weird uh, plant formations around it. It's fantastic. It's a really dramatic image. And I think Rodney Matthews, for me, is is someone who really gets into uh, in, into Moorcock and uh, it's very stylized and insect light um, humanoids who, uh, who who occupy it. So th- those posters uh, have an indelible mark on my memory. Yeah, I, I adore my copy of Last Ship Home, which has got uh, I, I, uh, Matthews does he does Earl Orbeck of Melville Malador, um, but he also does. Um, for example, Titus alone, you know, Mervyn Peak, yes. and uh, a few other fantastic illustrations. The Wind of the Willows, of course, absolutely magnificent. But okay, let's talk about uh, the book uh, before we dive into the synopses. I want to just talk about Moorcock's Forward, which is um, kind of interesting. Uh, I'll pick out this particular passage. Because of these elements, some critics have been pleased to find a sophisticated political message in the book, and it might save them further time if I say that the moral element in my fantastic romances is as straightforward as it was in most of my rock and roll lyrics, and bears as much weighty examination. Those were written as popular entertainments, with the same ambition, I hope, as a good popular song. A critic who, detecting some metaphor, a bit of irony, parody, or conscious symbolism in the work, has no more discovered profundity here than a Cahiz de Cinema critic at a Jerry Lewis retrospective. <laughs> he goes on to say, um, As with rock and roll, I was attracted to this form because originally it did not attract the interest of academic critics. Which um, kind of, I feel that slightly pisses on my chips a bit, but you know, I'll try and... Uh, I'll try and deal with that as as uh, we go through and um, not invite too much mockery from him later. Um, but we're going to start um, to talk about the uh, talk about the synopses, and I think we've agreed that we'll we'll alternate. So, um, do you want to lead the listeners into the jewel in the skull? Yes, certainly. So, the jewel in the skull. Uh, so, it's a tragic millennium, and the forces of Grand Bretagne are poised to subjugate and unify tragic Europe. And Baron Miladus of Croydon extends his hand to Count Brass of the Camargue, one of the last remaining free states in Europe. And he nearly succeeds, but he makes the mistake of trying to seduce Count Brass's daughter, his elder, and thus is beaten and humiliated and banished by the Count. And he swears on the runestaff that he will have his revenge. And I think this is a key moment that triggers the narrative for the rest of the uh, the sequence of novels. Uh, elsewhere, Dorian Hawkmoon of Colne, son of the Duke and leader of the rebellion, is interrogated in Lundra and co-opted into Malida's scheme to overcome the Camargue by deceit and force his compliance. He has a black jewel embedded in his head by the sorceress machine of Baron Callan of the Order of the Serpent. 
and this duel would eat into Hawkman's brain if he attempts to deceive Grand Bretagne. And so Hawkmoon is sent forth to work his way into Count Brass's good graces as a spy in Camargue. Count Brass and his scholar sidekick, Beau Gentle, his consulari, work out what's going on and they devise a counter sorcery of their own and using the skills of poetry, uh, they manage to diffuse and uh, sedate the Black Jewel. To give Hawkmoon time to travel east and seek out the sorcerer, Malajiji. But before he goes, he falls in love and pledges himself to Yzelda. And he helps to defend the Camargue. His journey east begins on a giant flamingo and then continues by way of a caravan owned by an immortal lich-like vassal of Cone and more conventional means of transport. On the way... He makes several encounters, including a half-giant Holodan and the mysterious warrior in jet and gold, a servant of the Runestaff. Hawkmoon and Holodan find Malajiji in the city of Hamadan, which has been torn apart by civil war between Queen Forbra and her brother Nahak. Believing his life to be forfeit to the Black Jewel, Hawkmoon fights desperately to liberate the city from Grand Bretagne and Baron Maladeus fighting on Frobra's side. When the fight is done, he's revived to find that Malajiji's sorcery has rendered the Black Jewel inert. He declines Frobra's offer of marriage and sets to return to the Camargue. The second book, The Mad God's Amulet continues directly on from the first, with Hawkmoon and Oladan making their way back towards the Camargue, and their first encounter is in Soriandum, a deserted city where they cross paths with Julian de Verc, an ambiguous Frenchman enlisted in the Order of the Boar, who later becomes Hawkmoon's companion. This part of the adventure involves Hawkmoon and de Verc standing off in a deserted, haunted city. Hawkmoon saves the ethereal inhabitants by obtaining crystals, which enable the whole city to shift into another dimension. Their obligation to the ghosts completed, Hawkmoon and Oladan seek passage upon a wretched vessel only to be reunited with Deverk in a storm. From there, they encounter pirates who serve the mad god, apparently supplying him with young women, one of whom is Yuselda, who inexplicably, has made a journey away from the safety of the Camargue. Spurred on by this news, and having overcome the pirates, Hawkmoon seeks out the so-called Mad God, learning that his madness comes from the false claim on an amulet that is really Hawkmoon's right, as a servant of the Runestaff. With the aid of Oladan, Deverk, and the warrior in Jet and Gold, they overcome the enemy before heading back to the Camargue, where Grand Breton's siege has almost overcome the territories. The last of their weapon towers have fallen, and Count Brass is said to be mortally wounded. But using the technologies of the ghost people of Soriandum, they transport the entire Camargue into another dimension, free of the threat of Grand Breton. So the third book is The Sword of Dawn. The inhabitants of Castle Brass lack stimulation in their newly found idyllic life in an alternate Camargue, away from the threat of Grand Breton. This is interrupted by the sudden appearance of Elvariza Toza, famed playwright of Grand Breton, 
who has apparently made his way to this plane by the use of a crystal ring created by the sorcerer Maidgan of Yell. The warrior in Jet and Gold turns up with a second ring and Hawkmoon and Devarak poise as delegates from the Asia Communista in Grand Bretagne with the aim of meeting the sorcerer and learning more of this sorcerous technology. This venture takes them to Yell via the salons of Grand Bretagne where Devarak ingratiates himself to the Lady Flana Mikasavar, one with the true claim to the royal bloodline in Grand Bretagne, and eventually they are reunited with the sorcerer, though Maladias is hot on their heels. Using the sorcerer's technology, they transport to another place, which they initially wonder is Asia Communista, but it turns out to be Amaric, the fabled lands of gods. Here, Hawkmoon and Devarak engage in various picaresque adventures, being invited into the subterranean home of Zanak Teng before being set upon by the clan Teng's mortal enemies. Fleeing the carnage, they inadvertently sell themselves into slavery on Valjon of Starville's river galley. And here they're liberated by Buchard and being given a good account of themselves, invited into his confidence. This is how, when... Buchard is abducted in Valjon, the pair ended up assaulting the Temple of Batach, Gerandium, where they witness Valjon's cult bleeding their enemies to feed monsters from a pit over which hangs a sword from which emanates a ruby light. Then, at the time of the greatest crisis, when it seems that all hope is lost and Hawkmoon is about to be sacrificed, the warrior in jet and gold emerges to spur him on. Hawkmoon claims a sword the Sword of Dawn, and with its powers conjures the Warriors of Dawn. This is a supernatural force that vanquishes the enemy and establishes the sword, like the Mad God's amulet, as the right of the Eternal Champion to be wielded by Hawkmoon. The adventure over, the warrior in jet and gold directs Hawkmoon to seek out the city of Danark on that continent, where they might find the runestaff itself. But at the last moment, Hawkmoon has other ideas, and, resentful of that supernatural agencies that are directing his actions, steers his ship for home in the Camargue instead. The final book is The Runestaff, so this final installation intercuts events in Grand Breton, where Emperor Huon questions Baron Meliadus' loyalty concerned that he may be obsessed with Hawkman and Count Brass, and Hawkman's attempts to thwart the Runestaff in controlling his destiny. And in the latter case, his ship is turned around by dragons, and he's marooned on an island with Orland Fank, an Orkneyman and servant of the Runestaff, who promptly puts him back on the right track, gifting him a boat that is large enough for just Hawkman and Deverk, and is blown by supernatural winds to their destination. When they get there, they're confronted with Shenagar Trot, the Count of Sussex, who, like them, has come for an audience with the Runestaff. After some fairly transparent attempts at diplomacy, Trot tries to take the Runestaff by force, and the good guys win, but at the expense of the warrior in Jet and Gold, who perishes. Having won the Runestaff, our heroes return to the Camargue to plan their invasion. At the same time, Baron Meliadus executes two plans. A coup against Emperor Huon, for which he's amassed political support from many other orders, 
and his revenge against the Camargue, which he achieves through his brother-in-law Tarragorn, whose science manages to reach out through the dimensions and shatter the time crystals devised by Myganeviel. As a result, Castle Brass drops back into our dimensions, but owing to the civil war in Grand Bretagne, they emerge with no enemies to fight, just the local villages burned to ash. The rest of the story intercuts the internal conflict in Grand Bretagne with the assault from the Camargue forces over the Silver Bridge that connects mainland Europe to, the, to Grand Bretagne. In the last few chapters, nearly all of the protagonists are killed, although Moorcock gives a spotlight to all of the PCs who die in the assault. Some die tragically, and others heroically. But I didn't really feel shortchanged by any of the descriptions of their last moments. And the cycle concludes with a new order in Grand Breton, uh, led by Lady Flana Mercosova, uh, who pledges to outlaw masks. Hawkmoon and Yuselda then return to Castle Brass, supposedly to live out the rest of their days in a more peaceful setting. And that is the end of the cycle. And I, th- I think it it ended... Um, I mean, I think you you said some interesting things about the middle portion, which I think we'll get to in a moment. I did very much like the way that it ended, much more than I, I remember liking originally. I, I felt that it dragged a bit through the middle portion, but that last book has a, a pretty strong pace, I think. Um, and I was just wondering, what would uh, if you're going to rate all of these out of five? Um, what would you give? What, what sort of rating would you give to each book? Oh, that's an interesting question because I, 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 I do think it does sink in the uh, uh, the middle. So I think the strongest is clearly uh, the Duel and the Skull. That feels like a fully formed um, piece, and so I give that four out of five. And uh, the middle two, I probably give uh, two out of five, and mm-hmm. it rises up again to three out of five for the final one. Is that a bit brutal? A bit harsh? Um, well, I, I, I was sort of um, taking as my baseline The Warhound and the World's Pain, which I, I, I think is one of one of my favourite of his novels, although I think, you know, that's that can be uh, challenged, which I would give a, a five out of five. I, I think that's actually a very fair assessment. Um, I might edge the second book slightly higher, maybe a 2.5, but I think you've got the right appraisal there. In the middle, it very much goes from, from place to place, almost arbitrarily, and there, yeah. there feels like much less agency than there is for the characters in the other books. And uh, and you're quite right, the first book for me is is also the best. I think it's a travelogue in the in the middle bit, and yes. you know, um, Moorcock works to a formula and he uh, admits that, and I think when it's works well it works really well and we'll perhaps talk about some of the sequences but when it doesn't you can see the infrastructure you can see what's going on and you can see his um, necessity to have action and incident uh, every uh, every four pages and to my mind it's a very much like the Edgar Rice Burroughs model of John Carter of Mars where it's a series of encounters that get gradually more and more uh, exotic and um, crazy in the centre bit. Okay, well, I'd like to then talk about um, the scenes that we think are, are our favourite, uh, and also if you've got any got an idea of any stinkers there, because um, I've got a couple, <laughs> uh, then um, we can have those. Um, do you want to start? 
um, yeah, with, sure. the, with the, the scenes that you think are, are best? Yeah, I'll start. Well, I'm going to start at the very beginning because I, you know, I think at the very start of the sequence of podcasts, you gave the great quote of Moorcock, you know, I'd rather be a bad writer with big ideas uh, than uh, a good writer with uh, small ideas. You know, that's his, that's his ambition yeah. to have scale and scope. But I also think when he's, when he's good, he's a great stylist. And you can see that in this opening chapter where he presents the world that he's created, this tragic millennium where there's been some unspecified uh, catastrophe and it's several years later where the feudal system's taken over. And this figure of Count Brass is represented as a great stoic former, uh, general former um, war leader who is surveying his estate, his lands. And as he's doing that, you're learning about the world, the uh, flamingos, the giant white bulls that uh, wander through the vistas. And um, I do think that just that that moment, it really encapsulates his style. He also encounters um, the Baragoon, which is this mutant... Uh, created by the former uh, Lord Guardian of the Camargue, who indulged in strange sorceries. So he also sets that idea that within this world, there's also um, weird science. There's you know the unusual um, manipulation of um, genetics, mm. and that is uh, is set out as a bad thing. And I think I think as a great moral figure. Um, Count Brass is the centre point to this, yeah. and he, he's very charismatic as well. The way that he's uh, he's um, represented, yeah. I mean, he's he's Brian Blessed basically, isn't he? Sort of, <laughs> yes, sort of slightly fitter and and uh, and, and tougher Brian Blessed, marvellous. Yes, yeah, and I, I like the way he's, he's described because you get that economy of language, but also. Um, if you read more Cockalot, you realise that he has this uh, loathing of what he calls elegant variation. So this idea in fantasy novels, and you get it in a lot of them, where they use uh, synonyms to alter um, the words so it doesn't seem like they're repeating themselves. But he takes great delight in describing the brassness of Count Brass. He must repeat the word brass about yeah. 20 times in one paragraph to just get over, convey the idea that this man is entirely constructed of brass. It's, I mean, it's a great word as well. I mean, it just sounds good, Count Brass. For my first one, I want to pick, I want to quote the opening of the second book. Now, I think you quite rightly said that the second book is. It's not great. Uh, it is absolutely a travelogue. But right at the start, when they arrive at, at Soriandum, uh, you've got the two characters, and this is directly after their battle at Hamadan, where they've you know saved Hawk, Hawkmoon's life. I nearly said Hawkwind there. <laughs> they saved Hawkmoon's life, um, and they're just two people travelling back, trying to just get back home, and they come across this deserted city, and. Then, of course, they have the encounter with um, William de Verck, who is leading a, a handful, just, just a handful of group of, 
of men from the Order of the Boar, and he's wearing his mask, which is a sort of almost a parody of the Boar mask. It's apparently, you know, very intricate and bejeweled, whereas the the, the boar mask is supposedly you know coarse and, and horrific and that the these soldiers have come there and in in an ornithopter the thing i liked it very much is the scale of that which is um it's very clear that hawk moon and uh Oladan, possibly to a lesser extent but certainly hawk moon feel hawk moon feels his own vulnerability because he's basically just there in um, silk shirt and breeches and it's only a small force of grand bretonians who turned up you know about i think like eight or so or something who can fit in the ornithopter but nevertheless it's kind of it's a risk so it's it's you've got this cat and mouse game going through the city where hawk moon and, and oladan have got to somehow try to outthink Deverk, who who basically wants to capture Hawkmoon for the prestige and money, uh, he's he's entirely mercenary at this point, and uh, he he is more so in later parts of the book before throwing his lot in with Hawkmoon. But I I thought that was particularly good because I don't know it kind of gave me the sense of uh, a little bit like the the sparseness and and um, small number of people in encounters with uh, you know, things like Robin of Sherwood, or the, the sense of desolation where you've got a, a bunch of named characters and a small number of enemies, and they're trying to outthink each other and make use of the terrain that they're in. Um, I got a very strong sense of that. That, was, that to me was interesting, and it also gave a lot of depth to the city whilst they were doing it. Um, very, very rich RPG fodder, I felt there. Yeah, very good. And a good introduction to a great companion character as well, isn't he? So, uh, Deverk is a is a great character, and I suppose he he makes up for the lack of charisma of Hawkmoon by, um, you know, he he is a fun figure, and um, he's he, he's the one who has the insight um, throughout the rest of the travels, isn't it? So he's a kind of a crutch for the uh, Eternal Champion. Yeah. Okay. Uh, over to you, sir. Yeah, for my second sequence, this is also appears fairly early on in uh, The Jewel and the Skull. And this is a moment, it's the black jewel, the appearance of the black jewel, which is inserted into Hawk Moon's head when he's in a kind of um, a pain-induced stupor when he's in Lundra. And the reason I, I love this is because of the weirdness of the science and it's described as sorcery, but the Grand Breton has access to this weird and creepy um, science. Um, so this machine which implants the uh, black jewel is described in a very fibrous way um, made of kind of strands and uh, it's kind of an eerie um, eerie appliance it's unrecognisable from anything um, that exists in our modern technology it's kind of a a strange uh, technology and I just like the concept of the black jewel now I'm not I'm by no means suggesting anything here but uh, a year before uh, this was uh, written, Jack Vance had, of course, brought out uh, Kugel's sec- uh, well, The Dying Earth second book, The Eyes of the Overworld. Yes. And uh, Kugel has uh, 
a sentient entity planted into his liver uh, full of uh, barbs and hooks, the uh, furks. It's attached to his liver to make sure that he complies um, with his mission. And the black jewel has a similar effect on Hawkmoon. It's implanted in his head and there's this threat that it's going to eat his brains. And I love the scene where Hoon's in this milky um, uh, fluid in a tank and he's uh, very melodramatically uh, reminding Hawkmoon via uh, Melidus what it does. Have you told him that it's going to eat his brains? Yes, I have told him he's going to eat his brains. And I love that. I love that, uh, that scene, but particularly the way that the... Uh, the, the actual technology is described. So this this jewel is more than just a jewel. It's this fleshy object. It's like a sinister fleshy object that is uh, in his skull. So yeah, I, I love that. I love that moment. It's uh, it's high melodrama, high gothic, um, and it's uh, it, it's a scene that I remember reading way back when I was uh, twelve or thirteen and thinking, "Wow, this is amazing." Yeah, and and horrifying as well. Yes, uh, and that, that's which is yeah, obviously the point. And for my side, um, the next one I wanted to pick out was was maybe maybe not a specific scene, although there are a couple that I'd want to point to. One of which is never mentioned again. I'll get to that in a moment. But it's mostly about the descriptions of Grandbretagne and, and Londra, uh, and the society in which they live. And the, there's a couple. That I want to um, want to point out. The first one, though, is actually about Baron Meliadus himself, and it's said that um, basically the Baron has an obsession with clocks, and this is this isn't really talked about later because, of course, he has his brother-in-law as uh, Terragorm is the keeper of the Palace of Time and this sort of bizarre time sorcerer but Meliadus himself is it sounds very much like his apartments are I don't know they're they're, they're like a sort of uh, Victorian uh, drawing room where every surface is covered in clocks or something like that and I kind of feel that this is fairly typical of the way that um, the way that Grand Breton is being presented it's this um, a sort of it's half it's half medieval, but it's also it's half Victorian, and and of course the the idea about everyone has this obsession with wearing masks and is horrified at the at the idea of going around society unmasked, um, because of course those who are unmasked are actually of a uh, a lower caste than everyone else. Um, but there's there's this general sort of much more Victorian sense of the sort of. It, it is a sort of, uh, in some ways, a colonial novel. Um, it it does, it does kind of, um, yeah, regardless of what what Moorcock says in his preface, that there's nothing particularly subtle about it. Um, it does illustrate the very worst excesses of of you know British colonialism at the height of the of, of the Victorian period and the end of the nineteenth century, but also. It very much feels like people will decorate their apartments and, and the places they live and, and themselves in a in a strangely Victorian fashion, which is kind of interesting. I mean, it's it's not the only it's not the only of um, one of Moorcock's novels. I, I get the sense of this. Of course, there's the Warlord in the air, there's the Warlord of the Air, uh, and uh, the Dancers at the End of Time, where they kind of parody this. 
But um, I, I think that's one of the sort of the, the smaller details about Grand Bretagne, particularly interesting, um, and add so much more depth than the rest of the, the rest of the novels. I really feel that when um, when Moorcock's writing about those particular parts of this cycle, he is doing writing his very best, and you know it, it's everything with the backdrop against Grand Breton. That is the best of of what these books have to offer, in in my view. Definitely, definitely, and it, you can see how that has influenced gaming as well. That kind of uh, approach, isn't it? And the depiction, particularly of uh, a particular version of Gothic Britain, infused with science fiction. Uh, you know, Warhammer Forty K has, yeah. uh, has, has has taken this and run with it. Yeah. Do you have another one you want to talk about? Well, I'm going to uh, introduce one, but it, this is for your benefit. I'm going to in- introduce this uh, sequence because I do think that the moment that for me is most interesting when we're talking about the multiverse and how it intersects is in the final novel in the chapter, The City of the Glowing Shadows. This is the point where they've been redirected to Amaric to um, meet the rune staff or to uh, actually finally um get near the rune staff um because in in here this is where probably it impresses on the reader its role in the wider uh, cosmology where um they meet uh jahama cornelius who's the uh how, 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 how do you pronounce that because it's like a it's it's jamah Cohen. Alias, it's. I I think that's probably you know the best that that, that we're gonna get there. Let me let me get, yeah, Jahamia Conhalias. No, oh, Conhalias. Yes, it's uh, rearrange these words into an avatar. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so this is this is the uh, embodiment of the uh, Runestaff, this childlike figure. This is uh, this is where the rune staff appears at the embodiment of a, a, a small child, and that is a repeated image, isn't it, throughout the uh, books? A small child. I think uh, Ariok appears to uh, Elric as a small child, and he sometimes uses that device um, as a kind of an ethereal presence, the innocence of uh, children against the background of, you know, uh, great war strife, um, and. You know, you've got this confrontation with uh, Shenagar Trotz, the Count of uh, Sussex, who's a great, great vi- villain. Oh, um, he is. Yeah. yeah. And there's some great villains in, in throughout this uh, sequence of novels, but this final confrontation, I think, is uh, is really well handled and it's, you know, it's operatic in scale. I mean, you raise a, an interesting comment about um, Ariok appearing as a child. And of course, the, the one that I remember, and maybe it's because I've, I've just, list, just listened to the Eric of Melbourne uh, three-parter from Breakfast in the Ruins, and I'm reminded that Ariok appears as a golden youth. And, um, and of course, King Huon's voice um, was taken from a golden youth, now a thousand years dead. Um, so it, it's kind of also interesting how the um, the imagery has been passed around from you know the, the, the various players on the supernatural table as it were yes so 
I mean, on the, on that subject of the supernatural, uh, though, uh, I've got a couple of other remarks. One is that you know this is largely like um, like the other two novels that preceded it. It's it's mostly a secular story. I mean, sort of setting aside the fact that von Beck was serving the devil. It's kind of mostly it's done. There's there are a few considerations about actual supernatural entities and gods. Now, clearly, the Rinstaff is one. Um, but there are some gods mentioned uh, in Grand Breton. It's like on page, it's like on chapter five of book two of the last book. I think I've got I've bookmarked it here, and it said, you know, they're describing a ship, and it said gilded figureheads decorated the forward parts of the ship, representing the terrifying ancient gods of Grand Breton: Joan, Jorg, Prowl, Runga, who were said to have ruled the land before the tragic millennium, Churchill. <laughs> the Howling God, Bjorn Adas, the Singing God, Gigi Blad, the Groaning God, Jim Slass, the Weeping God, and Errol Wilson, the Vo- <laughs> Yes, <laughs> Errol Wilson, the Roaring God, Supreme God, Father of the Scavies, and Bland Sacred, the Gods of Doom and Chaos. So, uh, now obviously that's Morcock having a bit of fun as well. Um, and Maybe that's the point: is the the gods that um, the gods that Grand Bretonians are worshiping, they they have mythic status and enough that they'll want to you know do big bass reliefs of them and decorate their ships. But we know that they're actually just other people, just the terrible people who came before, or at least that's what we suspect. So there there aren't really any gods in this one, but there is this notion of the supernatural. And there's this this bit you you mentioned the the um, sequence where they're taken towards the the city of glowing shadows, just before then. And of course they they have their ship arbitrarily steered toward an toward an island because uh, by by dragons because they've re- Hawkman's refused to go where he's been told. So then the rune staff you know gets involved and said, no, you're going there, mate. And then um, there's. At the start of the chapter of the City of Glowing Shadows, there's um, there, there's these you know Hawkmoon moaning about his position. He said, uh, you know, I'm becoming tired of such things. He says as they're steered towards yet another glowing supernatural thing, and and, and later he says, how I come to lo- how I loathe the supernatural and resent its uh, and resent its hand in my destiny, uh, which is and and then as as another one where he encounters Orland Fank and says, um, "You have a boat for us." Devert was astonished. Aye, not a splendid one, but a seaworthy craft nonetheless. It should take the two of you. We have a crew of fifty. Hawkmoon's eyes blazed. Oh, if the Runestaff wishes me to serve it, it should arrange things better. All it has succeeded in doing so far is to agger me fiercely. And I kind of think that if we were playing around the table and I'd done this to my te- my players, that is exactly the kind of response I would get. So I'd drop a big NPC in front of them and they would just trash talk the NPC and say, oh, if the room staff wants us to do this, it could, you know, it, it could, have, could have laid on something a bit more comfortable than this bloody dinghy or something like that. <laughs> and that's... And, and, so I, I kind of, you know, ab- absurd as it is, it, it is kind of, Moorcock gets away with it because I think he actually parodies himself at the same time. So uh, I, I particularly enjoyed that bit. Okay, well, I think we've had three apiece. So um, the last thing I want to talk about is kind of 
where this the position of this in the sequence and of course i'm i'm doing this kind of indulgently um rereading the ones in order and i'm trying to really divine what they what you know reading them in order would tell a new reader now i i know you read the first four for your for your review some years ago yes and so i'd be interested to know your opinion but it's it's like I, I I took out a couple of things um, from this sequence that I think is significant. First of all, this is the first book that's actually written in the third person as opposed to the first person. So the the first um, the the first uh, two volumes, von Beck's written first person and very much like a sort of a travelogue itself. Uh, certainly, the second novel is very much like that, and the second book, The Eternal Champion, it's the internal thoughts of John Dacre. This one is written as a third-person novel, so it has a slightly different tone to start with. Um, and then it's also, uh, now from the previous books, we know what's going on. We know that there is a supernatural hand in the destiny of the Eternal Champion. A lot more energy is devoted to the world in which uh, in which things are happening. And I, and I think this is... This is as as you would expect it, and so I kind of see where this novel has its place. The other thing, though, uh, is I really feel that this, if, if we're looking at what this particular sequence tells us, it's that there are supernatural forces, and far from being sort of benign and personable, they will move their little playing pieces around the board and they don't really care about the well-being of the eternal champion you know the eternal champion is to is to the rune staff a soldier and 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 certain versions of the eternal champion will die certainly the companions of the champion will die you know two-thirds of the protagonists die in the last book but it's a largely secular book so for me i've got this sense that it's very much saying that you've got a supernatural force directing the um, the force of humanity, and they are a player on a wider stage that we haven't fully seen, which is kind of something I would resent uh, if I if I were the eternal champion and being pushed around and being told that no, I, my my whole my whole existence is predetermined by the rune staff because we are talking about determinism, and otherwise it's it's not a particularly um, there is there is no real uh, we don't really talk about the gods in in Hawkmoon. There's no real sense of the wider law versus chaos. It's just um, it's just the rune staff setting things to rights um, as the balance. I assume. Do you think that's reasonable? Yeah, yeah, I, I, I do. I think um, I, I think. The question of balance comes is it, it, put through Hawkman. As you say, he's kind of obstinate, isn't he? He's trying to resist his fate, whether it's the um, the influence of the jewel in his head or for the short period that has influence over him, um, or whether he's being dragged um, from pillar to post. All the time he's trying to resist it, even, even the commands of... Um, uh, Count Brass at the beginning, he he doesn't want to be beholden to him, you know. He 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 wants to make the choices, um, and so it is. It is a story of agency with um, Hawk Moon in the in the centre. But as you say, it's not. It doesn't really reflect on. It doesn't really give scope for any moral choices or any choices in the con- context of the cosmos. 
only in a few distinct scenes, some of which we've uh, touched on. Um, yeah. So I think broadly, it's more about a, a person trying to uh, determine the the own choices against the background of uh, conflict and um, the position in the world being upended and people trying to enf- enforce on the uh, on him as an individual ideas of what he should be doing next and I suppose it's that thing of his passion for his elder. And um, I suppose it's a romance in that sense. I think of um, all of the novels in this sequence, I'd I'd argue that this is probably more straightforwardly a tale of good versus evil because Grand Bretagne is depicted as unambiguously evil. And I think that's why it is a very good setting for role-playing games where these broad stroke ideas and concepts are easier to handle than some of the more woolly and hard to grasp um, concepts. Um, so I think that's why that's why it's so appealing. It's got lots of other things as well. You know, the idea of having a feudal Europe um, uh, with touches of uh, strange science, it makes a great uh, playpen. But I also think the the straightforward morality and one person's um, internal conflict and trying to determine what they should be doing in the world without being buffeted around, whether it's by the rune staff or by individual players or actors within the um, in the political scene. Yeah, excellent comments. And just to just to wrap up these ideas, I mean, you you did write a note about um, Holtman's encounter with Elric, um, and this is the thing about sort of having read loads of these in a long time ago. I couldn't remember if the if the meeting between uh, between the four incarnations of the Eternal Champion happened in in this sequence, or if it happened in another book in, in with Elric or one of the others, because I think it's, it's Coram, Ericosa, Elric and Hawkmoon in that one, making the four and one. Yes. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah so it's in the uh, quest for Tanalon. I think it comes later in the Count Brass. Oh, that, that would be why. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And it's also uh, the same encounter is described by Elric in the Sailors on the Seas of Fate. So they, it's kind of uh, gives both perspectives of uh, a similar incident. Um, and I've been trying this afternoon, trying to tra- track it down the moment where it's spotted. But I, I know that either Elric doesn't, Elric doesn't have a good opinion of uh, Hawkmoon and vice versa. There's like a personality clash. <laughs> I yeah, I'm looking forward to reading that again with them because I, it really is quite a while since I read those those bits. Um, you know, to be honest, uh, I'm I'm going obviously I'm going to read the sequence to the end, but um, the second the second Hawkmoon sequence is not my favourite. No, by, by a long <laughs> way. But um, never never mind. I mean, it's you got to finish it, start and solve, finish. Okay. All right, so. Um, thank you for those comments. Now, um, the last thing is, uh, obviously I wanted to do one final segment, which is, uh, just for a bit of fun. And, and because years ago in the nineties, I played a, uh, a game 
which you know, we called the Eternal Champion, where four of us created our own version of the Eternal Champion, uh, and we all ran games for the other three in the world that we play that uh, we were in. Um, so, I've asked you before you came here about uh, what would your version of the Eternal Champion be, and what is the what is the world that they would come from? Well, um. I, I like how Moorcock takes two archetypes and brings them together to create a synthesis of an idea. So I've picked uh, two uh, figures that I find uh, appealing. So one of them is uh, Moff Tarkin from uh, Star Wars, because I find him a fascinating figure in that he is, it's never quite clear whether he's a military leader or whether he's a civil servant. And I like to think he's an over-enthusiastic um, administrator who's just um, so enthusiastic about his uh, project that he is he's outside of morality, that you know he is the ultimate law, uh, agent of law, in the sense that he, uh, he can't see the rights and wrongs of what he's doing. He just wants to see efficiency. So I've got, got that sense like a... a, a over-enthusiastic uh, bureaucrat. And then the other figure the, that I want to pick is one that is close to uh, Michael Moorcock's heart. Um, he's a character created by Norman Spinrad, which is uh, Jack Barron from the book, Bug Jack Barron, which mm-hmm. was published by New Worlds and um, for various reasons nearly bankrupted it and probably spurned on um, the actual writing of Hawkmoon in, in a weird way. So Jack Barron is a, um, a TV host and he's an exploitative TV host. He is, in, in modern parlance, he's a shock jock. Um, so I want to bring together these two uh, in My Eternal Champion and create Jonas Cardiac. Um, Jonas Cardiac uh, exists in the early 90s and this is a pre-internet world. But what Jonas Cardiac has done is he's an administrator of various simulacra of the multiverse. And he creates these uh, different versions of uh, the world and inhabits them. And within it, he is a disruptor. So as people are... Um, experiencing in these and our various scenarios, he appears as somebody who provokes and um, uh, causes uh, is a provocateur and causes uh, disruption in people's uh, people's existence. So that's the way I see it: a great uh, simulacra of multiverses that are administrated uh, administrated by Jonas Cardiac, Eternal Champion. Oh, that's brilliant. Thank you so much for that. <laughs> uh, it's been uh, fantastic to have you on the show, Dirk. I really appreciate it. Before uh, before we wind up, do you would you like to uh, tell the listeners what you do? And um, depending on when they listen to this, of course, there's, 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 um, it may or may not be useful to talk about what you're doing right now. But um, if you want to talk a bit more about the Grognard file, yeah, That'd be great. So, the Grognard Files is a, a podcast that really started off as a memoir of uh, our experiences of playing role playing games when we were younger. And 
a group of us, uh, three of uh, two of my other friends, uh, we started playing games again uh, about uh, eight years ago. And um, returning to the hobby after a deep freeze, we begin to rediscover it to find out that it was still going on. When we thought it had finished in the 80s, it's continued. So the podcast is partly us going back and remembering things that we did, but it's also about our experiences of playing the games now and learning about new games and using the experience of old games to inform the way that we play now. Uh, We have interviews with people from... uh, predominantly from the British RPG scene in the 80s, people who were involved in uh, White Dwarf and uh, and Games Workshop uh, back then, but also um, some of the other game designers, such as uh, Ken St. Andreas Peard, who, uh, of course, created Stormbringer, uh, which is the game based in uh, Moorcock's uh, Elric universe, the Young Kingdoms. So, yeah, that's that's what it's about. And it's... um, I think we, we're kind of serious about the topic, but it's done in a kind of uh, entertaining way. I'd, I'd like to think, you know. We... No, I, I definitely think it's entertaining. And, uh, and yeah, the, the, the praise is well-deserved. Uh, I think at the time of re-recording, you just did the um, the aftermath episode. That's uh, episode forty-two for you. Although you've got a strange numbering scheme, because <laughs> we have. Yeah. Yes, indeed. Yeah. <laughs> so, and um, so you've been going for longer this than this podcast. So, um, which I, I felt the aftermath episode was particularly fine. Uh, really on point with a lot of the genre, a lot of uh, a lot of the discussion. Um, very uh, well balanced and a superb discussion about threads at the end. So, yeah, thank you, stuff. thank you. And I, I've yeah. enjoyed uh, listening to your uh, podcast. It's uh, one of my staple uh, podcasts. And uh, there was a period of time where it must have fallen off, and I've I've enjoyed uh, rediscovering it and uh, catching up on this. And I think this is a great project and I'm looking forward to seeing how it continues, Ralph. It's, uh, you've well, taken on a big, big mission here. Good luck. Yeah, well, it's, uh, you know, I'd rather be a, a bad reader with big books or something like that. I'm <laughs> not sure, something like that. All right. I think uh, let's wrap things up there. Dirk, thank you so much for coming. I'll um, hope to speak to you some other time. Cheers. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, listeners, thank you for listening. And if you if you enjoyed this episode, please like, share, and subscribe. The music, as always, is provided by Chris Zabreski. That's at chrissabreski.com. Until next time, see you later. Bye. <laughs>